Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 24, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I've entitled the morning's message, Curses, Misunderstandings, and New Beginnings. And um, the title will take on meaning as we make our way through these, this portion of Matthew this morning. <clears throat> Matthew 24, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all of these things, know that it is near at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, as we look at this, these verses this morning, the time frame is the Lord really only has just a couple days to live. And um, when people become aware of their mortality and time is short, sometimes it's the, the last things that they say that are sometimes the most important things that he wants you to remember. So the Olivet Discourse is um, Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, it simply says, when it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Well, what sayings? The Olivet Discord. And then he said, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now we have the time frame. Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse as one of his last teachings, and as a result, uh, I believe there's more significance. As we studied on Wednesday, the disciples came to the reality, finally, when he told them that the temple was going to be destroyed, that the kingdom was going to be postponed. And they finally accepted it. And that prompted them to begin to ask Questions. If that's the case, Lord, then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If it's not right now. So as we look at the parable of the fig tree in 32 to 35 this morning, um, I remember many years ago, Chuck actually put together a, a video called the parable of the fig tree. It's very outdated because it's probably made in a, late 60s, early 70s. And there's been 
even so much more phenomenal growth um, in the land of Israel. Um, And it's exponential because it's growing continually in all areas, uh, even as, as we speak right now. But let's just start, because I'm making a statement that the fig tree mentioned here is a reference to Israel itself. When you see the fig tree start to bud, and the people that see the budding of the fig tree, in this case Israel, now go to the Old Testament and the New Testament to um, verify the statement that I just made. But when you see it, then know that this generation is gonna see the fulfillment of all the things that we've studied on Wednesday night and yet future events. So let's begin by turning to Jeremiah chapter 24. I'll give you a little chance to get there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one um, right in front of you you can use. And if you don't have one, you can take it home with you too. In Jeremiah 24, of course, Jeremiah, his ministry was having to tell Israel that they were going into captivity. And um, we pick it up in verse one. We'll just read um, the first five verses of Jeremiah to make my point. It says, and the Lord showed me, and, and there were two baskets of figs, figs come from a fig tree, set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were bad. And then the Lord said, what do you see, Jeremiah? He said, figs. The good ones are very good, and the bad ones are very bad, which cannot be eaten. They're so bad. And again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, which is Israel, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. Um, So we'll stop there. The point is made that he's using the analogy of figs being the people that are being taken into captivity. Some of them are good and some of them weren't. Old Testament reference. Let me give you a New Testament reference by looking at Matthew chapter 21, just a couple chapters before Uh, where we're studying in chapter 24 this morning. Matthew 21, picking it up uh, in verse 18, we have the cursing of the fig tree. Now this also would have happened after Palm Sunday and the cleansing of the temple. And the Lord walked by a fig tree. And verse 18, it says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry, And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said, let no fruit grow on you uh, ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they they marveled, saying, well, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also 
to say to this mountain, be removed and cast it into the sea. And all things, believing you ask, prayer, believing you will receive. The fig tree um, in Isaiah talks about the Lord coming to his vineyard and wanting fruit. But uh, the fruit there was wild fruit. Was it good? So we have Jeremiah using Israel as an example of the fig tree. And because um, Israel is going to reject their Messiah, I'm quoting the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And then if you turn to Matthew 23, and he understands that they're going to reject them, he's especially upset with the religious leaders and really chews them out. Calls them every name in the book from serpents, brood of vipers. They're holding up the kingdom of heaven. Eight times he pronounced woes upon them. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. But then you get to see a little bit of his heart in verse 37. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, Oh, how I wanted to gather your children together, just like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. He came to his own. His own rejected him. And then he said, see, now your house is going to be left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will not see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There was a cutting of the cord here. Um, They were plotting in chapter 22 to take him out. Jesus rebukes them in chapter 23. And because he knows that they weren't aware of the time of his coming like they were supposed to, he said, therefore, now judgment's going to come upon you. And um, 38 years later, uh, from Luke 19, we have the Roman legion marching against Jerusalem and not one stone being left upon another. Why? Because you didn't know the time of your coming. This is gonna be a big part of our study this morning. They should have known. And I'll get in a reason why they didn't know in, in just a second. But as we see Jesus's lament over Jerusalem, he's lamenting. In Luke 19, he says, oh, if you'd only known that this was your day, but now your eyes are gonna be hidden from it. And and right before that, it says Jesus wept. So there's a lot of emotion in verse 37 because he realizes the implications of them not knowing. They were gonna be destroyed. They were gonna be dispersed, and they didn't have a clue because they weren't prepared for it. Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD because of their lack of understanding of the prophet Daniel. Now, the reason I called this Israel's misunderstanding and curses, this is a curse that Rome is gonna be used as a tool of judgment in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was used as a tool of judgment during Jeremiah's day. So, I was reading, I hope you guys, um, I found out we're out of them in the bookstore, we gotta buy some more. Um, I like reading wisdom for today. And on the 25th uh, this week, um, 
Chuck is in Mark 11, and it's talking about the Lord coming. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Um, and I'm quoting just a couple paragraphs from Pastor Chuck here. Uh, when Jesus came the first time, it was as a servant. For I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, uh, but the will of him who sent me. His first coming was full of sorrow, rejection, pain. His next coming will be far different. He will return in power and glory, the king of kings here to establish God's reign over the earth. Now, it is a reference to the second coming when we return with him, and I'm gonna deal with that when we read the rest of the verses on the rapture. The Jews were confused by Jesus because they focused on only half of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. They were watching, as the disciples were, for the coming of a glorious kingdom, a utopia on earth, no more heartache, no more sickness. Yet other verses spoke of the Messiah being despised, rejected, pierced, and beaten. They prophesied that he would come in lowliness, riding on a donkey. But because the Jews could not reconcile the two portraits of the Messiah, they rejected him when he appeared. They didn't understand that both descriptions were true and that they'd find their fulfillment in two separate comings. One to make a sacrifice for man's sin, first time, and one to reign in glory some 2,000 years later in power. Jesus sums up this portion of scripture with a single word, watch. We should be watching for our Lord's return. We should be waiting in expectancy right up to the minute of his return that he should come today. Now this is a reference um, to the rapture uh, that Chuck is talking about that the Lord could come today and we should have no business yet undone. One page on this. And the reason I called this curses and misunderstanding, Israel is gonna be temporarily cursed, blinded. And at the same time, it was because of a misunderstanding because they didn't comprehend that the Lord would come as a suffering servant and there are so many scriptures I could do. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was nailed with two thieves. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's all in Psalm 22. But I'm just gonna, for sake of time, uh, quote, the, I think the one that's most obvious that they had to struggle with. And that would be Isaiah 53, if you're taking notes. And if you wanna follow along by turning to Isaiah 53, I'm just gonna read select verses from here. The Jews could not reconcile that Jesus would come and die for their sins and establish a kingdom at the same time. So in Isaiah 53, verse three, it says he's despised and rejected of men. Well, that's the Gospel of John, verse one, verse 11. He'd be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How often we don't think of our Lord that way, but yet he cried over Jerusalem. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet 
we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now verses 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Please let that settle in. This was God's plan. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. It's the word just where we get the word justification from. For he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, one on the right and one on the left, and he bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of the whole world, but not everybody's going to receive his free gift. And he made intercession for the transgressors. One of the thieves actually went to be with the Lord in paradise that day, and the other one went and is still waiting his judgment before the great white throne judgment. Their misunderstandings of these verses led them to reject him when Jesus came the first time. Now, he will come again when Jesus was bodily taken up into heaven. I'm uh, in Acts chapter one right now. They watched him bodily arise, being taken up in a cloud. And all of a sudden, according to Acts 1.11, we have two angels show up and start talking to, um, he says, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing, looking into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Matter of fact, when you're reading Zechariah, it says when he puts his foot back down in the same place that he took off from, there's gonna be a great earthquake. The very place he left from is the very place he's coming back to. But don't get that confused with the rapture now, because a lot of these verses are interchangeable, and we're gonna go through that. Um, But before we get to that, um, Israel first of all, we'll need to return to the land. Now, if you weren't here on Wednesday night, um, Jesus uh, talked about the abomination of desolation. He says there'll be a time called the tribulation, the worst it's ever been. There's never been a time like it. There's never gonna be a time like it again. Well, that's yet future. And primarily, it's Satan's last card that he's got to play and that is to destroy the Jewish people. And that's all of Revelation chapter 12, and that would take us an hour just to do that Bible study. But it clearly shows that a remnant's gonna be protected, and two-thirds will be destroyed uh, during that period of time. But in order for that to happen, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there's gotta be a temple for the daily sacrifice to be taken away. So what we're talking about now with the parable of the fig tree and it's budding, it's been out of the land since Jesus said, you're not gonna see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the Lord. They haven't been here for 2,000 years. But in order for the rapture to take place, 
in order for the abomination of desolation to take place. In order for the Antichrist to arrive on the scene, there has to be an Israel. Good place for an amen. amen. Is there an Israel today? Yes. 70 years this, 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 um, this May. So was it foretold that this would happen? And the answer to that is yes, and I'm gonna have you turn to Ezekiel now, chapter 36. And while you're turning to these, let me, I've told this story before, but some of you will be hearing it for the first time. Dave Hawking will be with us for the Prophecy Conference. Dave had the privilege of leading the first tourist group up to Masada. There was no cable car that took you up back in those days. You actually walked the Roman ramp um, that conquered the city, uh, the, the structure that we call Masada. In a nutshell, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, there were some zealots that made it out, and they hightailed it to Masada because it's, nobody can really conquer it. And they were successful in holding off Roman legions for several years. Um, there's a great movie, if you've never seen it, I strongly encourage it, called Masada with Peter O'Toole um, acting in it. And it very correctly describes what happened at Masada. Well, the wall was eventually breached. The Romans came in. And they knew that even though they made it a couple years past the destruction of Jerusalem, that um, in the morning the Romans would be there. And so rather than becoming slaves, they drew lots. And they took their own lives rather than being slaves to Rome. It was a shallow victory for the Romans because when they came in, they were all dead except one woman and two children who were there to tell the story. Well, when it was first opened for tourists to actually go there, Dave was the first one. It has the oldest synagogue. I think they found one older recently. It has the oldest synagogue in Israel because it dates back to 70 AD. All the rest of them would have been destroyed. So when they reached the, the, the entrance to go into Masada, they heard all this yelling and screaming and rejoicing that was coming from uh, the synagogue, which is where we have our Bible studies every time we go there. And um, so they wandered over and said, what's, go- what's going on here? In a typical synagogue, you have a, a small room where the Torah is kept and the scrolls. And as they were excavating, underneath one stone, they picked up the stone, and here was a scroll laid out. It was open to Ezekiel chapter 36. What did that mean to them? They knew that they were going to die, but they also knew that they were going to come back. And that's what, in Ezekiel 36, if you're there, let me just look at verse 8 through 11. He's talking about By the way, we're living between Ezekiel 36 and 37 has been fulfilled. 38 is on the doorstep right now. Russia and Iran are both in the Middle East right now. And these are the two players that make up the Ezekiel 38 war. But in verse eight, it talks about them being regathered. But you, O mountains, verse eight of 36 of Israel, 
You shall shoot forth your branches. What does that sound like? It sounds like the parable of the fig tree to me. When a branch draws near and you know that it's summertime, the branches are coming out. When your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am with you, and I will turn to you, and you will be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, and all the houses of Israel, all the cities shall be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply to you men and beasts, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabit as in former times and do better for you than at your beginning. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. This occurs 54 times in the book of Ezekiel, this reoccurring phrase. Yes, and I will cause men to walk on you and my people Israel, and they shall take possession of you and you will be their inheritance and no more will you be bereaved of their children. Make your way down to verse 30. Two, the desolate land. Mark Twain went there in his time because he always wanted to go to Israel. He says, there's nothing there. The only thing that I saw was some sheep eating some rocks (laughs) because there was no grass. When Israel began to come back at the turn of the century, it was swamp and rocks. They drained the swamps and they cleared the land and they began to plant trees. And that's just within the last 100 years or so. But here it says, the desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified, and they're inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate, I the Lord have spoken it, and I will do it. For thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them, and I will increase their men like flocks, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast day. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they will know that I am the Lord. They came from nothing. And just last week, I think it was in the news bite, that Israel has the eighth strongest army in the entire world. Israel produces 40 different kinds of fruit. Uh, and it's one of the largest exporters in the world, about the size of New Jersey. And I think they're either in fourth or fifth place because they're so productive in, in their, in their um, systems. They made a tomato with salt already been salted in the tomato. <laughs> they're distilling the ocean water, so water is scarce, but they're spending billions so that they can, um, they're very, very good with the agriculture and conservation of their water. Only plants get water, they'll run a black tube and a black tube will stop at a plant, and that's where the water gets off, nowhere else. So they're very conservative and very skilled at what they do. But from nothing, what did Ezekiel say? It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. Simple question. Either it's true or it's false. I've been there many times, and it's true. And every time I go there, there's more tourists, there's more produce, 
and um, they're taking the barren lands and with these uh, um, turning the seawater into water, extremely productive. And that's exactly what was prophesied here and that's what gave hope to those people who died in Masada. Yes, we're dying now. We don't understand it now. But Ezekiel says we're going to come back. And they had, they had that hope. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Biggest miracle in the world today, if you want to show a person a miracle, say, look at the land of Israel. Why is it important? Because, you see, the generation that sees the fig tree bud will see the fulfillment of all these prophecies. And as we look at verse 36, we now, one of these that is going to happen during this period of time when Israel is regathered back in the land, is an event in verse 36, but of that day and hour knows no, no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Gang, this can only apply to the rapture of the church. Well, how can you be so sure? Well, because remember Jesus held them accountable for not knowing the time of his coming in Luke 19. Daniel 9, Nehemiah chapter 2 tell you to the day the Messiah would come. So you can check off that one. We're not talking about uh, the first coming of Jesus. But Daniel chapter 12 tells us the very day that Jesus is going to come the second time. Now, for those of you who didn't catch it, let me say it again. Dwight, did you just say you know the day that Jesus came the first time? Absolutely. April 6, 32 AD. Are you telling me you know the day that he's going to come the second time? Absolutely. Please be a Brian. (laughs) Check your notes. Do your homework. Daniel chapter 12. It says that 1,290 days after the event called the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about earlier in this chapter, and he says, whosoever reads, understand. Never says that anywhere else. In other words, do your homework. So, the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel 9, verse 27, is a seven-year period of time, just a coincidence that the tribulation is a seven-year period of time. And in the middle of that seven-year period of time, is an event where the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself to be God. Now Daniel 12, this is how the book of Daniel ends. He says, when you see that event, 1,290 days later, you have the second coming. So when we read, no man knows the day or the hour, well, I do know the day of both the first and the second coming. What I don't know, because the rapture is what we call imminent and it could happen at any time that's why Chuck closed uh, this by saying we should be watching for our Lord's return well if it was during the tribulation period we wouldn't be watching we'd be waiting for the Antichrist to to show up now I'll talk more, more about that in a little bit later the rapture is imminent and uh, we are to watch for it um, If you go back to verse 24, verse 3, and the disciples, you know, settling in. You're not going to set up the kingdom now. And in verse 3, when that reality set in, um, 
It says the disciples came to him. Now if you're here on Wednesday, we read in Mark's gospel that um, it was just Peter and Andrew and James and John. Only four of them, not all of them. But we don't get that information in Matthew. It just says disciples, plural. But they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign? Will you please notice that it's singular? Of your coming and then the events of the end of the age. It's not signs, even though the Lord gives signs. Earthquakes, famines, pestilence, and so on. But there's one particular sign that they were to look for. What is the sign? The budding of the fig tree. When you see the fig tree bud, that's the sign. When it begins to prosper, when it's the eighth largest, strongest army in the world, the sign is Israel. Gang, this hasn't happened in in world history. There are no more Philistines. There are no more Jebusites. There are no more Hittites. Unfortunately, there are termites, but they weren't part of the promised land. There are no ethnic groups that exist after being assimilated into another culture after one or two generations, except for Israel. 2,000 years they kept their national identity. Despised and hated, they're called the wandering Jews for a reason. And they wandered from place to place, but they kept their identity. Why? Tradition. (laughs) Wherever they went, they had their synagogues. If they had 10 men that were Jewish, you could have a synagogue. And there was a moment in history after World War II in the Holocaust called the Belfort Declaration that had a softening on heart for the Jewish people. And they allotted them a portion of land in Israel. And on May 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion got up and said, I declare this to be the state of Israel. And the fig tree all of a sudden started to blow, uh, blossom. And so what is the sign? Lord, tell us, what is gonna be the sign singular? The sign singular Prophesied by Ezekiel in 36 and 37. I didn't get into 37, but it's two stories about parables, about talking about the regathering. Both have been fulfilled and have been fulfilled for the last 70 uh, years. So what is the sign? The sign is Israel back in the land. And then we read, uh, picking it up in verse 37, through 44, we have what it's going to be like when Israel is regathered back in the land. And an event that we call the rapture of the church is, is uh, alluded to here. And I wanna point out the normality. Uh, the, well, let's just read it. Everyday life activity. For as the days of Noah were so will the coming of the Son of Man be? For as it was in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. He was faithful to his generation. He talked about coming judgment. And he's a crazy old man building a boat out in the middle of nowhere. So they blew him off. Well, how is it gonna be judged? Well, it's gonna rain. What's rain? (laughs) It had never rained before. Well, it wasn't just the rain from above, but the fountains of the deep that broke up. 
But everything was just going on, everyday life. And they did not know giving, marrying and giving in marriage. But then one day it began to rain. And the fountains of the deep broke all in one day. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Larry Norman had a song about the rapture. A man and wife asleep in bed. She turns his head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Do you know that it's possible? Husband saved, wife isn't, vice versa. That that's really going to happen. Hears a noise, turns his head, and gone. Song's called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. We have Bible studies like this to help us be ready. To have that anticipation that Pastor Chuck talked about. Always watching. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore. This can't be about the second coming. Because Jesus said in the same chapter, he said, unless I return, no flesh was going to be saved. That doesn't sound like everyday life to me. It talks about he's got to intervene in world history or world, the world will nuke itself. We have the technology to do that today, to end all life on this planet. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour which the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you be also ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. I expect him 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. But here I'm told a day I'm not expecting him. And believe me, when he does return, it isn't life as normal. Literally, all hell is broken loose. In the last two judgments, the battle of Armageddon and the hailstones of um, the seventh bull plague pretty much destroy the planet. Where I got an email from Russ Miller, who's going to be here at our pastor's conference. And he says, Dwight, what do you think about this? I've been thinking about the tribulation as being a judgment, yes, but also in preparation for the Lord restoring the planet um, during the millennial reign. And um, um, it was an interesting thought. He says he has his own hypothesis about it and he wants to talk about it. I said, go for it. Makes perfect sense because the earth will be destroyed, but then the Lord is going to remove the curse and the earth will be repopulated. So Russ wants to go after that. I told him, go for it. Sounds great. Every day life, um, I like to say for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. Do we have one for the rapture? Some people say the rapture isn't in the Old Testament. I believe there's pictures of it. I believe there's a teaching in two places. Let's go back to the book of Genesis chapter five. Genesis five. I wish I had an hour for this one. I'm gonna pick it up in verse 21 where we, what we, we have here is a genealogy beginning with Adam and following through to Noah. So here we have a line of beginning with uh, Adam and going all the way to um, Noah in verse 32. But let's, I'm interested in Enoch 
in verse um, 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years and he begot sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Well, what do you mean he took him? Just what it says. He just took him. And I believe it's a picture of the rapture of the church. And he had a son whose name was Methuselah, who of course, you know, you say, well, that guy's as old as Methuselah. 969 years old, the oldest man in the Bible. Moses lived, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech, and after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Um, now, as we get into the oldest man in the world, let's get sidetracked here talking a little bit about Methuselah. If Methuselah is the oldest man in the world, how is it that he died before his father? That's a riddle. You can solve it over lunch. Some of you know it already because I've said it from the pulpit before. What's the answer? Enoch never died. That's why he died before his father, who was the oldest man in the Bible. You can keep that and share it later and mess around with people's heads about it and they'll have to try to figure it out. Well, let me just talk a little bit about Methuselah. The flood of Noah did not come as a surprise. It had been preached for four generations. But something strange happened when Enoch was 65, from which time he walked with God. Enoch was given a prophecy that as long as his son was alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. But as soon as he died, the flood would be sent forth. Now, Enoch named his son to reflect this prophecy. You see, the name Methuselah comes from two roots. Muth, a root that means death, and from shalak, which means to bring and to send forth. Thus, the name Methuselah literally means his death shall bring. And indeed, in the year that Methuselah died, the flood did come. And all we have to do here is the math. Methuselah was 187 when he had Lamech and lived 782 years more. Lamech had Noah when he was 182. The flood came in Noah's 600th year. You add 187, 182, 600, you come up with 969. Methuselah's age when he died was the same year that the flood came. It was a sign. But this is what I want you to see. That before judgment, Enoch was taken out. And here's the picture. And uh, he was, it's a picture of being taken out before the judgment came. It's interesting that Methuselah's life, in effect, a symbol of God's mercy in forestalling the coming judgment of the, of the flood. You ever why? You wonder, what's, is there anything significant about him being the oldest? Yeah. It shows that God is, what, long-suffering. Now, as far as I look at the world, we should be out of here already. 
I believe it's that bad. But the Lord is what? Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And I think Methuselah fits the type perfectly. In effect, it's a symbol of God's mercy in forestalling the coming judgment of the flood. It is therefore fitting that his lifetime is the oldest in the Bible, symbolizing the extreme extensiveness of God's love and his mercy. Enoch was taken out by rapture before the flood of judgment came. The same will be in the church taken out before the great tribulation. Now I can't resist because as long as we're here in chapter five, can I do a little sidetrack this morning? Somebody sees, somebody, please say yes. yes. Okay, good. I, I would have done it anyway, but it doesn't. <laughs> Not only does Methuselah's name have meaning associated with it, but every person named here from Adam on through has a meaning to the name. Now remember that Jesus said, go ahead and search the scriptures for they are they that testify of me. All the scriptures? Um, the volume of the book is written about me. Oh really? Yeah, beginning with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim. El is singular for God. Elohim is plural. If you look at verse 26 of Genesis 1, it says, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. You have a picture of the father and the son in Genesis 1 and verse 36. And if you're taking notes, the first prophecy of Jesus is in um, Genesis 3, verse 15, where it says, his... Uh, Satan's head will be crushed and the one who is crushing it will be the Lord himself. So we have the volume of the book. That's in Genesis 1 and 3. Well, this is Genesis 5. And if I just gave you the meaning, the Hebrew uh, names, and you can just kind of follow through as I go through them. Um, uh, Kenan means sorrow. Mahaliel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means the despairing. Noah means rest or comfort. But if I read it as a sentence, it would sound something like this. Man's sorrow, and then the blessed God shall come down teaching. His his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. And I go, are you kidding me? putting the names together and you have the volume of the book being about Jesus. I think, you know, when the Lord says for the countless ages to come, he's gonna be showing us the things that are in this book. I think this is just one of those little nuggets here. Go to Isaiah chapter 26. I believe, uh, I think you gotta be careful about number one, spiritualizing scripture or taking scripture out of context. Having said that, there are places like Isaiah um, where the Lord stopped in the middle of a comma talking about his first coming. The Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on and so forth. But he stops at a comma and he quotes it in his home church of Nazareth and he didn't finish the sentence where it says in the day of vengeance of our God. Well, why did he stop at a comma? Because the day of vengeance of our God is still future. But that was fulfilled that day because he said so. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Or how about 
the donkey in Zechariah chapter 9. You have, behold, your king is coming to you lowly, riding on a colt of a foal. That's verse 9. But then in the very next verse, it's 2,000 years later, and he's reigning from (laughs) shore to shore. What's your point? Well, that's in the middle of a context talking about something completely different. And yet, the Holy Spirit pulls it out, has it being fulfilled on Palm Sunday, and verse 10, still future. Now, with that thought in mind that I have comfort in believing that the scriptures we are about to read are about the rapture of the church. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, and enter your chambers. Just think of John 14 right now. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. And then shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself as it was for a little moment. Well, how much of a little moment? I believe seven years. Until the indignation is past. Do you know that is one of the words to describe the great tribulation? For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That makes it even clearer. And the earth will disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. But he says, come my people, go into your chambers, just for a moment, in the light of thousands of years, seven years is a moment. And we have here, until the indignation is passed. Well, what happens after it's passed? Well, we return with him to the earth. It's called the rapture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, in talking to the Corinthian church, talks about the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And um, then he says, well, except for one group of people, because in the resurrection you have to die before you're resurrected. But in verse 51, First 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> Paul is, says, I, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now the word change there is metamorphosis. This is what happens to a caterpillar. I'm watching the monarchs right now. We've got a bunch of them around the yard. And um, they are a little bug that crawls around the highways and squish your tires and eat, and that's about all they do. And then one day they begin to spin a cocoon that they go into. And then millions and millions and millions of years later, (laughs) two weeks, two weeks they go from a caterpillar to this unbelievably complex creature that can fly, that can reproduce, and they're smart enough all to end up in Mexico on some mountain in the wintertime. And that all happens in two weeks. And no wonder the Lord says that man is without excuse because of creation. You can't look at that bug and say it's gonna turn into a butterfly in two, two weeks and not be completely blown away by the awesomeness of our creator and be humbled uh, by it. So in the same way, we have these bodies right now. 1 Corinthians 13 says we're gonna have a new body and we'll know just as we'll be known. 
I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The word death is never used for a believer. But we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And this corruptible, the older I get, I understand it more and more, puts on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. No more death once you have this body. No more pain. So Paul, I like this, oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your victory? I was talking with uh, Jim this last week. He was helping me out with a project I got going. He's talking about putting in his crops and 10 years from now, and he's talking to a buddy about it. And Jim was saying, I'm not planning on being here in 10 years. I hope it's okay I said that, Jim. It's too bad I already said it, right? <laughs> but what I, his demeanor in saying it is, so what? You know, his attitude was, this is not my home. And that we are just passing through. And the older we get, the Bible says three score and 10. And he's just, just about there, so am I. And um, we should have this attitude right here. Bring it on. I don't want to suffer. I'll be honest. Who wants to suffer? Um, I want to get raptured. I'll be honest with you. And, um, but Paul would later say, you know, I'd rather be with the Lord than here. But for your sakes, it's better that I'm here so that I can disciple and teach and help people grow in their walks with the Lord. So I understand that too. But Paul said, if I had a choice, I'd rather be with the Lord. And we think of anything otherwise, all you need is about a 10 second look at heaven and you'll change your mind. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the labor and the Lord is not in vain. But everything else that you do for this world is in vain. But anything that you do for the Lord is not in vain. Well, just as Israel was confused and misunderstood the two comings of the Lord, can't reconciling a suffering servant and one who's gonna establish a kingdom, they were confused, they misunderstood. Well, so the church is confused about the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church. Most of Christianity today that calls themselves Christians do not believe in the rapture of the church. Or they have different views of the one that I believe that we're seeing here where no man knows the day or the hour. They say the rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the word's not, but neither is the word trinity, but that doesn't mean there's not a trinity. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, actually will have risen first, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Then we who are alive and remain, this is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up and that is 
That is the, the Latin word for rapturos, which is where we get the word rapture from. Caught up, snatched up quickly, violently, instantly, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Why is it comforting? Because of what happens immediately preceding the entering into the chambers. Why? Because the Lord comes out of his place to bring his wrath upon the world. Oh, it'll just be for a moment. And then we will return with him. Um, go ahead and put it up on the screens to help you out. And by the way, what, what I have here in my notes, you can pick up on a table. Basically, these are scriptures that make a difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a translation of all believers. Well, I don't believe in the rapture. Are you born again? Yes. Well, then you're gonna get raptured whether you believe it or not. I'll explain the details on the way up. At the second coming, there is no translation. Uh, The rapture, the translated go to heaven. But at the second coming, the translated saints return to the earth. The rapture, the earth uh, not judged. Uh, the second coming is the battle of Armageddon. The earth is judged. Um, the rapture is at any moment, it's signless. I use the word imminent as an important word. That it could happen at any time. We do not know the day or the hour. But the second coming follows definite predicted signs, primarily Daniel chapter 12, 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. Now, I don't agree with this one here, the rapture not in the Old Testament. I believe it's in Isaiah 26. And you can disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, The second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63, who is this who returns from Basra, whose robes are stained, with blood, he tramples out the vintage. The rapture before the day of wrath, 1 Thessalonians 9. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. It's after the great tribulation. At the rapture, he comes in the air for his own to claim. At the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own. At the rapture, only his own will see him, but at the second coming, Every eye will see him. And that's Matthew um, 24, verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And um, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the power and glory in the clouds of heaven. That's Matthew 24, verse 30. After the rapture, the tribulation begins, and the second coming, the millennium kingdoms begin. Again, if you want copies of this to help share with your friends or just to help your further study, you can pick one up on the table. Let's see if we can wind this up this morning. Back to Matthew 24, and we'll read verses 45 through 51. This is sort of a summary when it says, who then? Who then is faithful and wise servant who his master will make ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing. In other words, just being about his father's business, pressing on, keeping a routine, 
being faithful to the Lord, not being like Lot's wife and looking back. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if the evil servant says in his heart, my Lord is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come at an hour when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware of. Now, let me just stop here and um, comment on on why I'm a strong believer in the pre-trib rapture. And that is, when we get to this verse here where it says, my Lord is uh, delaying his coming. Um, I believe that the pre-trib view is the only one that can't say my master is delaying his coming. But I do believe if you hold any other view other than the pre-trib view, that's exactly what you're saying. You're saying the Lord can't come today. Why? Because all of the other views of the rapture, be it pre-wrath, mid-trib, or post, are all during the tribulation period. And you're saying the Lord cannot come because you have to have the Antichrist come first. That's the first sign that you see. Now, if you have the hope of the second coming in in Titus, I'll, I'll have you turn to this one as we close this morning. There's a purifying effect that takes place. In second, in Titus chapter two, all the other views except the, the preacher view, we have it being an imminent event. I believe Paul was actually talking to Titus about looking for the blessed hope. Here the Lord is telling them that we don't know the day or the hour, so make sure that you're watching. But if I believe that it's not gonna happen until the mid-trib, I think, I think an attitude could set in. I think uh, indifference could set in. Well, I'm mid-trib. I'm, I, I'm not mid-trib, but I'm just saying somebody is. <laughs> what are you saying? You're actually saying my Lord is delaying his coming. Whether you know it or not, that's what you're saying. He can't come until mid-trib. And I'm saying that we don't know the day or the hour. Now, Paul in writing to Titus said he was looking for the blessed hope. Gang, I gotta tell you, if I'm in any part, um, be it pre-wrath, mid-trib, there's still um, a quarter of the earth's population destroyed the pre-wrath view and the mid-trib view. I find no glorious hope in that whatsoever. And so looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for his own special people, zealous for good works. And if anyone has this hope in him, what hope? That the Lord has a plan and he's not appointed us to wrath, which is the tribulation period. If you have that hope, Instead of indifference, we don't have to worry about it because the Antichrist hasn't showed up yet. We don't know. He purifies himself just as he is pure. If we think, you know, it's getting pretty late out there and all the stage is set, there nothing has to happen. Israel's regathered. The Lord really could come today. That's why you see those bumper stickers, perhaps today. I'll close with a Pastor Chuck story. He grew up in a rather legalistic four-square church. 
but they were solid as far as the rapture teaching and the doctrine. And going to a movie was a no-no. But when he's young and your friends are strong-arming you to go to the movies with them, Chuck would pray before he went in, Lord, please don't come while I'm in the movie and be left behind. (laughs) My point is this. When you live in anticipation that the Lord could come today, aren't you watching your P's and Q's a little bit closer? Doesn't it have a purifying effect in your life? Where I find the other views just have just the opposite. I'm not saying that they do. And I think it's an individual thing. But that complacency can enter in unless you think it actually could happen today. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As we tackle the issue of the parable of the fig tree and the rapture of the church, Lord, we thank you for the blessed hope that you have a plan. And in closing with that, Lord, you said, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And Lord, we do find comfort uh, that you have a purpose and a plan. And so, Lord, just go before the rest of our day and bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.